Well, I would invite you to open your Bible with me to Philippians chapter 2 for our message today entitled, The Exalted Christ. The Exalted Christ. And when you're there, follow along as I read verses 1 to 11, and we will conclude this section today by looking at verses 9 to 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Today is Reformation Day. It's why we sang, uh, Our Mighty Fortress is Our God at the start of the service. Reformation Day is is not a holiday. Uh, It's the Sunday closest to October 31st, uh, where we celebrate or remember the events on that day and after that day, and really surrounding that day, when on October 31st, 1517, 505 years ago, Martin Luther posted what are called his 95 theses on the community bulletin board, the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. These 95 theses or statements were points for theological debate. And almost all of them were specifically focused on the issue of the sale of indulgences. To keep the debate within academic circles, uh, Luther wrote them in Latin, the language of the academy at the time, but someone translated them into German, and the firestorm that started then still burns to this day. Now, it might surprise you to learn that Martin Luther was not a believer when he posted those theses. In fact, if you read through those theses, which I would encourage you to do, Uh, they actually show he wasn't against indulgences. He was against the abuse of indulgences. In fact, Thesis 81 says, This unbridled preaching of indulgences makes it difficult even for the learned men to rescue the reverence which is due the Pope from slander or from shrewd questions of the laity. And then, Uh, He went on to have a number of theses that would describe the kinds of complaints and questions that people would come up, that that would come up because of the sale of indulgences. And so then in Thesis 91, he says, If therefore indulgences were preached according to the spirit and intention of the Pope, all these doubts would be readily resolved. Indeed, they would not exist. End quote. So those two statements show that at that time, Martin Luther actually had a positive view of the Pope. And he thought it was the the lower level priests who were abusing and preaching and selling indulgences improperly. But once he posted his 95 theses, he learned rather quickly that the corruption of the sale of indulgences went all the way to the Pope. And he eventually said things like this, I feel much freer now that I know that the Pope is the Antichrist. (laughs) He said this, after the devil himself, there is no worse folk than the Pope and his followers. Martin Luther was not a man known for subtlety. 
In Life at Hope that we sent out on Friday, we linked there to a documentary that you can watch. It was produced by Ligonier Ministries. It's free to watch on YouTube, and I'm sure at their site as well. And that would be one good way you could spend an hour and a half today or tomorrow uh, learning about how God could use a very flawed man, just like you and me, to accomplish great things for Christ. But Martin Luther wasn't the only one shining the light on the truth in the, in the land of darkness. Uh, there were a number of men throughout the world whom the Lord was using at the same time as well. There was William Tyndale in England who translated the Bible into English. Uh, there was John Calvin who pastored in Geneva and preached the word of God verse by verse and taught and wrote and trained pastors who themselves went around the world. There was Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich and many others who worked alongside these men and others who are lesser known also. But still, Luther's posting of the 95 Theses there on October 31st, 1517, was really a hinge on which the history, uh, the flow of history turned. Now, the Reformation, as the name implies, was an attempt to reform the Catholic Church. But calling attention to its errors revealed that its corruption was so severe that it had really become a false religion. And so the only option then was to to separate from the Roman Catholic Church and to establish new churches that proclaimed the gospel and and taught the word of God. Now, at the center of many theological corrections that had to take place, there were five key doctrines known as the five solas that defined the Reformation. These are really the banner under which all reformers gathered, even though they had their own differences in various other issues. And the five solas are these. Number one, sola scriptura. Scripture alone affirms that God's word alone is inspired and inerrant. And there is no authority that supersedes or equals Scripture. Scripture is the highest authority and judges all of the thoughts in all of the writings of men. Scripture is the foundation about, of what we should believe and the only binding authority for our lives. Sola Scriptura. The second is Solus Christus. Christ alone affirms that it is the work of Christ alone that saves us. He lived a sinless life, meaning he never violated the law of God. More than that, he he lived a righteous law, perfectly adhering to the requirements of God's law. Jesus perfectly loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. And Jesus perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. But out of hatred, the Jewish leaders handed him over to the Romans and the Romans crucified him. And on the cross, he bore the wrath of God on behalf of his people. But three days later, he rose from the grave and declared victory over sin and death. And it's on the basis of his righteous life, his substitutionary death, and his glorious resurrection that we can be saved. Number three is sola fide, faith alone. This affirms that salvation is is not through works, but through faith. One cannot contribute to Christ's finished work by adding your own good works. There's no religious pilgrimage you can go on. There's no money you can give. There's no prayer you must pray. There's, There's no deeds that you must do, but rather salvation is received solely by believing and trusting in the complete and finished life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Number four is sola gratia, grace alone. This affirms that both salvation and the the whole of the Christian life is the result of God's grace so that no one can boast. All people are sinners and deserve nothing but the wrath of God that is due to us for the rebellion that we have committed against him. And so God's grace is the ill-deserved granting of forgiveness and redemption. His rescuing us from death and hell. And more than that, it's the free gift of righteousness and eternal life. And then finally, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. This affirms that the ultimate purpose of all things is to glorify God. Romans 11.36 says, For from Him 
and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God does what he does. He allows what he allows. He performs what he performs. He saves whom he saves and he judges whom he judges so that he might be seen as the great and awesome God that he is. So sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola fide, sola gratia, and sola deo gloria. These five solas were not invented at the Reformation. Rather, once the the layers of man-made tradition and false doctrines were wiped away, the truth of the Word of God began to shine through. And so one of the sayings of the Reformation is, after darkness, light Now, among many of the false doctrines that had to be cleared away and exposed and taken captive to the obedience of Christ were the doctrines pertaining to the Pope. The doctrines surrounding the papacy developed over time, but there were three titles, three titles that the Pope held that should cause the hair on the back of our necks to raise. The first title is Pope which means Father. In fact, he is often called Holy Father. The second title is Pontifex Maximus. His Twitter handle is Pontifex. But the full title is Pontifex Maximus, which means Great High Priest. And the third title is Vicar of Christ. And the Vicar of Christ means to be Christ's earthly representative. In John 17, 11, Jesus calls God Holy Father. Hebrews 4, 14 tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. And in John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is his representative on the earth. In short, by having the titles of Pope, Pontifus Maximus, And vicar of Christ, the Pope has taken to himself the name of each member of the Trinity. Now, because that's a little on the nose, the Catholic Church has explanations as to how he's not actually taking God's titles for himself in a blasphemous way. But the titles are what they are. In fact, in addition to those titles, the Pope is also referred to as the head of the church and the chief shepherd of the church. Both of those titles are given in Scripture to Christ. So despite their attempts to explain away how the Pope is not taking the place of Christ, they can't get away from the fact that he has taken to himself nearly every name given to Christ in the Word of God. Now, in stark contrast to the Pope, a man like the rest of us who has no accomplishments, and no qualifications to deserve the titles that have been given to him. The Lord Jesus Christ is God. And because Jesus did not consider his rights and his privileges and his power as something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, he alone deserves all the titles that Scripture give to him. Titus 2.14 puts it this way, He gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify us for Himself, a people for His own possession. How did He redeem us? 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Though Jesus is God, by being born into this world, the eternal Son of God took upon Himself a human nature and thus created what is called the hypostatic union. Here's your theological term for today. I said a couple weeks ago that this passage brings to us a whole lot of Christological truths. Well, here's 
another one. The hypostatic union is the theological term that refers to the fact that Jesus is one person with two natures. The one person, Jesus Christ, is truly God and truly man. Like the Trinity, this is beyond our comprehension. But Jesus was not a God who took upon himself merely a body. Nor was he two people in one body. One divine person, one human person in one body. Nor were his divine and human natures mixed together such that they were indistinguishable. In the eloquent and memorable words of Pastor Dave Doyle, Jesus was not God in a bod, nor was he God with a buddy, nor was he God in a blender. In the language of the ancient church, Jesus was, again, one person with two natures, which are unconfused, unchanged, undivided, and inseparable. Yes, there is great mystery here. As truly God and as truly man, the author of life, as Scripture calls Jesus, gave his life. He shed his blood, receiving upon himself the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. He did not hold his deity as something, uh, as an excuse to leave mankind lost in, his, in their sin. But he chose to give the most valuable treasure in all of existence, his own life, so that we might be saved. And so it's on the basis of the person and the work of Jesus Christ that verses 9 to 11 declare to us how God the Father responded and how you and I must and will respond to Jesus. The response by God the Father was, as you can see, to exalt the Son and to pronounce the supremacy of the Son. And the necessary response of every created being is to bow in submission to Jesus and acknowledge His Lordship. The end of which is to bring glory to God the Father. Consider the response by God there in verse 9. There are two parts to this response. We see the first in the beginning of verse 9. You see it there. For this reason, God highly exalted him. God highly exalted him. Jesus taught that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so it makes sense that the Father looked upon the ultimate example of humility in Christ and performed the ultimate example of exaltation. But there's more at work here than just some forced adherence to some principle of life. No, the humility and the exaltation of Jesus Christ is the result of the Father's love and delight in each other. We don't see this articulated in this particular verse, but I think it's important for us to understand this from other parts of Scripture. Let me say that again. The humility and exaltation of Jesus Christ is the result of the Father and the Son's love and delight in each other. We can see this in part when we see uh, Jesus praying to the Father. Keep your finger here and turn over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is known as the high priestly prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus prayed before he and the disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was arrested. And it's called the high priestly prayer because in it he prays on behalf of the disciples and all believers throughout time. But the prayer begins with a personal request. If you're there, John 17, follow along as I read just verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. 
even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So anticipating all that's going to take place in the next 24 hours, Jesus responds, or excuse me, reports to the Father that he has accomplished everything that the Father has predestined for him to do. And, and so Jesus appeals to the Father, asking him to return him to the glory that he had in eternity past. As we noted last week, it's not that Jesus had lost his glory, but rather that the, his humanity veiled his glory. And so Jesus is, in effect, asking the Father that the veil would be removed so that he would be seen as glorious as he is. And we see this uh, at the end of the prayer in verse 24. Look there. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where, where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. And listen to this, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus prays for his exaltation to refer, uh, return to his glorified state. And the Father, in resurrecting and exalting the Son, answered that prayer. And he answered that prayer because the Father loves the Son. Did you see that there in verse 24? And not only does the Father love the Son, but the Father delights in the Son. You don't need to turn there, but in Matthew 17, we read that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain. And as they were on the mountain, the scripture says, He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His garments became white as light. So there, the, the veil of his humanity was partially taken uh, away, and these three disciples caught a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And the text goes on to say, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and, a, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The father delighted in the son, and the son delighted in doing the will of the Father. You know, Jesus did not have the same attitude that kids have when their parents tell them to do their chores or some other thing. No, he rejoiced in doing the Father's will. Psalm 40 prophetically tells us the attitude of the Messiah as the Messiah is speaking to God. In verses 7 to 8 of Psalm 40, it says, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus delighted to do the will of God. In John 4, as the disciples went off to get some food for themselves and Jesus, Jesus ministered to the Samaritan woman at the well. When the disciples came back, they tried to urge Jesus to eat, figuring he would be hungry, but Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, Jesus delighted in and found satisfaction in doing the Father's will. Now we have to say that the Father's delight and pleasure in the Son was not on the basis of the Son's obedience as if the Son earned the Father's delight. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So the father delighted in the son long before the son became a man and gave his life as a ransom for many. The son humbled himself and obeyed the father out of delight. And the Father exalted the Son out of delight. But there is another layer that we can add to why the Father exalted Jesus, and that is 
because of what his death actually accomplished. There's a direct connection between what Jesus did and the way in which the Father exalted him. Because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, he successfully served as a substitutionary sacrifice, paying for the sins of his people, purchasing them for himself, as well as defeating death and the devil. That is what, at least part of what, Jesus accomplished. Ephesians 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption means that we have been purchased by him and now he owns us. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You have been bought with a price. And that price, as we read in 1 Peter, was not perishable things like gold or silver. You were redeemed with precious blood. Blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In addition to purchasing us for himself, Jesus' death accomplished victory over death. And the greatest enemy of all mankind, the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So Jesus rendered powerless the devil. Out of, uh, of his defeat of death, Romans 6.9 says, Christ having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And so it says, Jesus says of himself in Revelation 1, 18, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Because Jesus purchased the people for his own possession, because he defeated the two greatest enemies, the Father exalted him and gave him authority over everything and everyone. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20 says, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of all who fills, excuse me, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Father exalted the Son. That brings us to the second aspect of the Father's response. Look at the rest of verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The Father did not just elevate the Son above all creation. He also publicly pronounced the supremacy of Christ by assigning to him a name that supersedes every other name and which corresponds to his position. And that name is given in verse 11. Look there. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The name that the Father gave the Son is Lord. Now don't let your familiarity with that name make you think, really? That's it? Isn't there some other name that's more significant than that? Lord is more than a name. It is a name of unparalleled significance. In fact, it's so significant that Jesus used this name to confound the Pharisees as to who the Messiah is. In Matthew 22, Jesus asked the Pharisees, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Who is he? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he 
his son. No one was able to answer him a word. The reason the Pharisees can't figure out how David could call the Messiah Lord is because in their minds, David is greater than all his descendants, including the Messiah. There is a universal principle that we all understand of family hierarchy, right? A grandfather never speaks to his descendants as though his descendants are higher in the hierarchy than he is. Just doesn't work that way. But Jesus quotes Psalm 110 there and says exactly, that's exactly what David does. By calling Messiah Lord, David submits himself to the Messiah who is his descendant. Now the Pharisees couldn't conceive of a scenario where the Messiah, who they assumed to be nothing more than a human king, uh, a human leader, they couldn't conceive of how he could be greater than David. And the reason is because the only way that the Messiah could be greater than David is if the Messiah was more than a man. And if he accomplished more than simply defeating Israel's enemies. Now what's the conclusion of all this? What's the significance of the name Lord? By bestowing the title of Lord to Jesus Christ... The Father fulfilled Psalm 110 and made Him greater than the greatest of all of Israel's kings. Now, the title of Lord is also significant in that this is what you have to acknowledge about Jesus to be saved. Many of you have Romans 10.9 memorized. If you do, say it with me. That if you believe in your heart, excuse me, I messed it up. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not that simply saying those words saved you. But when this confession reflects a heart's full allegiance and submission to Jesus, that trusting in and confessing Jesus as Lord brings salvation. You can just read Scripture and and see that many people are called Lord in some ways in its most minimum meaning. It really means what we would say when we say sir. But by giving Jesus the name Lord and saying this is the name above all names and exalting Him above creation, the title bears the greatest meaning possible. In fact, Paul refers to Jesus in 1 Timothy 6.15 with these descriptions. The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Revelation 17, 14, the enemies of Christ, quote, will war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Referring to that same battle when Jesus will come to defeat His enemies, Revelation 19 says that He will come from heaven riding on a white horse, and on his robe, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Father's response to the Son out of his delight in his Son. He exalted him and gave him the name above all names. Everything and everyone is subject to, to Christ. He is the sovereign over every human institution, over every ruler, and over every person. Now, the Apostle Peter models for us how important this is in gospel proclamation. This is a key truth of the gospel. In his first sermon in Acts 2, after declaring the death and resurrection of Christ, he says this, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear, referring to the the speaking in tongues. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, referring to Psalm 110. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know. And we could say, let all of Columbia 
know, let all of Howard County know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, as a result of that proclamation, the response of the people hearing that message was, Brothers, what shall we do? That's the right question. When you hear that Jesus is exalted and sovereign over all, it demands that you ask the question in your own heart, if not out loud, what must I do? Well, our text answers that question. And as with the Father's response, there is one response with two elements. Look again at verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every name will and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The necessary response to the Lordship of Christ is to bow the knee, to humble yourself before him and to submit to him, giving him your allegiance. To bow the knee is a humble expression of submission. And to confess with your mouth is a verbal expression of allegiance. He is a conquering king. And when a king conquers your land, there are only two possible responses. Submit or rebel. There is no middle ground of apathy or indifference, or delaying your response. I recently spoke to a young man who said to me what many young people think. I'll give my life to Christ when I'm older. Implication, I I just want to live for myself for a while. Apathy, indifference, or delay is rebellion. It's a direct rejection of, of Jesus Christ as Lord. It sets yourself up as a competing Lord and denies Him the glory that He is due. Friends, listen carefully. Once you've heard that Jesus is Lord by virtue of His death, life, death, and resurrection, and that as Lord, He demands your submission, any other response is to wish eternal death upon yourself. to not submit to Him, to not confess with your mouth that He is Lord, is to spurn who He is and what He's done. Jesus is not a wicked and malevolent King who has defeated our beloved and gracious and loving and good King that we should hate Jesus. He's not the kind of King that enters into a beautiful land and destroys it with fire and destruction and death. No, our our land is a land of destruction and sorrow. The The ruler of this world, the devil, even while presenting himself as an angel of light, is a dark lord who is a liar and deceiver and murderer, and he oppresses his subjects. He promises happiness, but he only delivers sorrow. He promises relief, but He delivers pain. He promises life, and He delivers death. He is the enemy of our soul. And Jesus came into this darkness and lived a righteous life. And by His substitutionary death and His glorious resurrection, He defeated Satan and death and grants eternal life to any and all who would turn to Him, submit to Him, and confess Him as Lord. But understand this, this is not an offer. This is a command. Acts 17.30 says, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. Friends, Jesus is not a traveling salesman 
with a take-it-or-leave-it offer. He is not an entertaining entertainer enticing you to enjoy his show. He, he's not a businessman just recruiting you to participate in his business. He's, he's not a tourist destination inviting you to enjoy a holiday with him. He is the conquering king and Lord of all. And as such, he is sovereign judge. And those who do not bow the knee and declare their allegiance to him will face him as judge. And again, I say anything less than submission is rebellion. Now, perhaps there's someone asking the question in their mind, wait a minute, if bowing the knee and confessing Jesus as Lord saves a person, doesn't this mean that everyone will be saved? After all, the text says every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. In fact, the astute Bible student might call attention to the fact that Isaiah 46.22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. So does that mean that everyone will eventually be saved? In fact, if you, again, look at verse 10, of Philippians 2, it goes further to say not just everyone on earth, as Isaiah 46 says, but those who are in heaven, that's the angels, on the earth, that's everyone who's alive, and under the earth, everyone who has died. So all angels and all demons and all mankind living and dead throughout time will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. So again, will all be saved? No, this text gives us the the big picture. Other passages give us the details. The short answer is that submission and confession only result in salvation when they are done in this life. If someone dies in rebellion to Christ... They will bow the knee and they will acknowledge Christ as Lord, but it will be right before they are judged. No one will be able to stand before the glory of Christ and deny him. But at that point, it will be too late to change your allegiance. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for man once to die. After this comes judgment. And Revelation 20 describes this judgment. It says in verses 12 to 15, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, this is why you cannot postpone bowing the knee to Christ. You will do it, whether you want to or not. The question is, will you do it at a time when you can be saved? Or will you do it right before his wrath comes crashing down on you? So kids, teenagers, don't wait to give your life to Christ. Don't think that you can deal with Christ when you get older, because if you turn your heart away from Christ now, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you'll be able to turn back to him later. Young adults, those of you who are so full of energy and life and opportunity and potential, bow the knee to Christ now before you find yourself in a pattern of self-determination, but rather let Christ determine your life. Don't think you can enjoy your life and enjoy the pleasures of this world and ultimately find satisfaction because what you will find is enslavement 
And you may not be able to free yourself from that enslavement later. Those of you who've lived long enough that you think you've gone too far away from God. You've ignored Christ for decades. You've filled your life with sinful living. You've bowed the knee to every other so-called God except for Christ. You've heard the gospel a thousand times and you've said no one too many times. You've committed sins that you think take you beyond the reach of God's mercy. Whatever it is you've done, or however you think about your life, I have good news for you. If you can hear the sound of my voice, that means you are not dead. And because you're not dead, you have the opportunity today, even right now, to bow the knee to Christ. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Now why does he say there, my thoughts are not yours, and my ways are not yours? Because sometimes we think, I've gone too far. And our ways is to treat someone who's gone too far is to not grant pardon. But God is not like us. God does not think like us. His mercy is everlasting. His love reaches to the sky. There is no distance you can go away from God that His arm is too short to save. So turn to Him and believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and confess with your mouth that He is Lord and you will have your sins forgiven and you will be saved. Friend, know this. If you do not bow the knee to Christ in this life, you will bow the knee to Christ in the judgment. So don't wait until you've had your fun. Because you will never have enough fun to satisfy you and make you think, okay, now I'm ready to turn to Christ. Don't wait until you get older because you may not get older. Don't wait until your deathbed because you may not reach your deathbed. Bow the knee to Christ and confess Him as Lord today. Well, the end of verse 11 says, to the glory of God the Father. Soli Deo Gloria. The end result of the exaltation of Christ and the universal acknowledgement of all creation that Jesus is Lord is that God will be glorified. 1 Corinthians 15.28 puts it this way, When all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son Himself will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. In that final day, when every created being bows the knee to Christ, God will be seen as the glorious, compassionate, gracious, patient, loving, faithful, forgiving, and just God that He is. All of the refractions of the glory of God will be on full display, and every voice Every voice will contribute to the chorus of praise and adoration and worship. Now in a moment, we're going to end our service by singing, Is He Worthy? This is a song written based on Revelation chapter 5, where John sees a vision of the moment right before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. But in order for that to happen, in order for the the wrath of God to be poured out, someone has to step up who has the authority to pour out the wrath of God on the earth. And the only one worthy to do so is Jesus Christ. And there are three courses in that chapter of various praises given to Jesus who is portrayed as a slain Lamb. 
The first is sung by the the four living creatures who are around the throne and the 24 elders who surround them. And they say, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then the second chorus is sung by ten thousands of angels who surround the throne. And they say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then the third song is sung by every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. And this is the song to him who sits on the throne. That's the father. And to the Lamb, that's the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, His exaltation demands that we bow in worship and give glory to Him and to the Father. Let's pray. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive worship, allegiance, obedience, praise, dominion, power, glory, every adjective, every thing that we can think of, you are worthy of it. Lord, if there is anyone here who has not bowed the knee, Would you cause them to see your glory and grant them the gift of repentance and faith that they would confess you as Lord. And for those of us whom you have saved, whom you have brought us to our knees because you've opened our eyes to your glory, would you cause us to live in obedience to you. To turn away from selfish and sinful living. To follow your example of humiliation. To love one another as we have been loved. To serve one another as we have been served. So that in those works of obedience, we would give glory to you and to the Father. And it's for that sake that we pray. Amen.